0: Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. In this new episode, Darko, the podcast host, welcomes Unity VP of Engineering Services, Alan Page. Alan talks about the evolution of software testing and its impact on the software development industry and discusses how testing practices have changed the way software is built and delivered. I hope you enjoy this
1: new episode. Now let's dive in. So hello and welcome to Sanford Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Alan Page. Great to be here, Darko. Thanks for having us on. It was great having you on our podcast a month or two ago and took us a while to get over to your side, but we're happy to be here to continue the conversation. Can you please just go on ahead and introduce yourself, give us some stepping stones through, through your career so the audience can know who they're already listening to?
0: I began my career in tech just about almost 30 years ago. I worked on a whole bunch of stuff, mostly in the testing space, at least for the first 15 or so years. I did moved into API-ish testing uh, pretty quickly and did a lot of automated tests at the API level. Eventually, I drifted into writing a lot of test tools. And then I drifted into working on check-in systems before CI was really a thing things to help our build process, that I worked on build tools. And I, then eventually I sort of shifted into working on things that helped the whole team move faster. So a lot of, uh, for about five years, I worked in a central org at Microsoft, teaching testers and designing courses for testers at Microsoft. From there, I went back into more infrastructure work, worked on Microsoft Teams doing infrastructure, SRE, etc. And then finally, I left there and moved to Unity about five years ago, where I did some testing for a while, but now I'm back into infrastructure type work. And currently, I lead an organization that does a lot of different things. The biggest part of my organization is dev productivity, all, all those infrastructure tools for build systems, CI systems, etc. Um, for both our flagship desktop product, as well as all of our Web services and one thing that shifted in me over the years is I care more about more and more about quality every day, and the systems my teams build are all about improving quality and customer experience. Less concerned, become less concerned about testing. Testing is one way in which we achieve quality, but it's not the only way.
1: I'm interested to hear. So you published that book in 2008, which is. Maybe at the halfway your know, your career or you know, something like that. I'm curious to hear how did you come to that point where you felt the need and you know? I worked on this team delivering training for
0: testers at Microsoft. That was part of what we did. Also, what we did was a lot of consulting with teams. And then one thing we did is Microsoft had an executive briefing center, EBC. Where some of our clients who spent a lot of money with us as part of it, part of their deal with Microsoft, they could come to Microsoft and kind of request like, could you have this team and this team and this team come talk with us about maybe features for SharePoint or uh, features in Visual Studio, whatever. They, they would have direct contact with some of the teams. But we were getting an increasing number of folks, everyone from the Air Force to electric companies, they wanted to know more about how Microsoft approached different aspects of testing. And after doing about a dozen of these, I realized I was repeating myself a lot. People were asking the same questions. I was telling some of the same stories and explaining some of the same things. And I remember talking to my boss at the time about it. He said, there is so much, you know, you should write a book about testing. And he said, and I'll I'll help you. I said, okay, great. Uh, Ken Johnston is one of the other authors. Ken Johnston wrote two chapters B.J. Rollison, who I worked with, who worked for me at the time, also wrote a couple chapters, and I wrote the rest. It was all just, it was a little bit based on some of the trainings we had done, but a little bit based on, maybe more based on the questions we had from these customers to come in and ask us how we tested software at Microsoft. Brent and I make fun of the book a little bit because it's just, it's become dated. And some some of it a lot dated, but some of it actually stands up pretty well, regardless of our, of our mocking of it. The stories that, that told more of the anecdotes that were unique to Microsoft or how we approached some things like model based testing are
1: good. And you mentioned that some parts became you know really dated. or some are still relevant. Have you have you thought potentially about uh, repackaging the? Um, I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> I talked to MS Press on whether we should do
0: a second edition, and there was no interest. I can't really write one now because I'm not there, but I would write. I think it would make sense to write like how to, the guide on how to read the book, which chapters to skip, which stuff makes sense, which stuff is still applicable, both which chapters to ignore, and then where to get, where to get some more information about some of the
1: chapters that are relevant. How would you describe the career of, of a software test or a journey in a part of the career? what's the starting what's the starting point and where then it expands
0: testing in it, it's changed a lot over the years and also kind of how we use testers i think it's changing faster than some folks would like i think you've probably heard Brent and i talk about this i think for a lot of software is always going to need testers um some software is not going to need dedicated people in a testing role web services especially are things that The testing needs to be done there. One, functional correctness, no matter what you're working on, is today is the job of the developer. Developers are responsible for making sure their code is functionally correct. When you're doing a web service, of course, functionally correct is basically ready for use. There's some other testing probably needs to be done, also done by the developers. But you're looking at monitoring to understand how it's being used and to find the potential issues need to be fixed in the code. Dedicated testers not necessarily needed. Although there may be some cases where some exploratory API testing using Postman is the right thing for someone to invest in if they're really good at it. They would probably do it across multiple teams. As I hinted at before, there are some products, especially things with a maybe a complex interface to the product. Having a dedicated tester look at that and test that with curiosity and with a lot of drive around customer experience is probably going to be necessary long time. I don't believe in the tester mindset. I don't believe that that developers can't do that work, but I believe that having someone dedicated to that, again, working with functionally correct software. I think it's a waste of time for a tester to find basic functional bugs. If that's if that's the case, you're wasting their you're wasting them. You want them to find bugs that really could only be found by someone using the product end-to-end and thinking about customer outcomes. That testing role also should be pairing a lot with developers and helping them understand some of those testing techniques and testing ideas. I believe in you know, the whole team testing and everybody should do some aspect of testing. Some people are going to be better at it. We should leverage those people the best we can to help make everyone else better. I do not think it's a good idea to have anyone on the team, regardless of role, who is the only expert on how to do some aspect, some particular aspect of software delivery. Everybody should know a lot about a little and a little about a lot. So if you need an expert software tester on your team, you should have one, but that better not be the only thing they're good at because if they ever take a sick day or a vacation day, you're going to be in a world of hurt.
1: Majority of the people and teams that, you know, I meet and work with in 95% of the cases, the testing team and testers are not present, but that's just by the nature of the company and a lot of the people that we are working with are building, you know, SaaS products, you know, teams of maybe around 100 engineers. And a lot of it these days is covered through, you know, just automated tests and developers are responsible for testing. And there are organizations that kind of um, developers don't do testing, but there are people who are responsible for the quality of product and, you know.
0: Yeah, it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work to my definition, it works, but it's definitely
1: inefficient. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, moving away, there are like many components why those companies are, are struggling to move away from that.
0: Yeah, but you know, looking at DevOps, it's it's we no walls, no handoffs. Think of, you know, going back not even that many years. In fact, it's probably still happens some places. The dev team gives something over the wall or a handoff to a test team. And then often that test team will often hand off some work to a test automation team who are separate. And it's just like, no, this doesn't work this way. And we don't want handoffs. We don't want walls. We don't want over-the-wall approach. Everything needs to be collaborative from day one.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's getting back to the what we are talking about all the time is a fast feedback loop. What you just explained with, you know, just a wall or two, that's like definition of like in a feedback loop, which is not fast in absolutely any way. A first thing that comes to my mind is very demotivating because you cannot ship. And, uh, I mean, it always has. And for the majority of people, it is like that. The pleasure of, you know, doing work is if you ship something, if it's you, if it's being used by people and uh, you know that it-
0: people are motivated by progress. And feedback loops are a great example of that. And how long does it take to get something from... I mean, even if you're a developer and you think, okay, I'm done with my code, I've handed it off. But as Eric Ries says in Lean Startup, you have zero value from your engineering effort until it's in the hands of customers. So if you have to wait for handoffs till it gets to customers or wait for QA to finish their pass and rubber stamp it, you're not getting value from that effort. It's better to get it to them. And again, functionally correct and find out if it works.
1: Microservices architecture is older age these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com/ blog for more information and happy reading. So for us in an organization, we are like a 50-people organization. We have a product for 10 years. It's something which, which is in the cloud. Since about a year ago, we are also shipping software on-prem. And uh, pretty much none of the people on our team have ever shipped the software in that way. Maybe what's a piece of advice that you would give to a team of 20, 30 engineers who always just it in the cloud and always had the ability to release? One of the things we've done recently, which is my advice... And
0: this came from, I managed to go to a, what I thought was just your basic webinar from Nicole Forsgren, author of Accelerate. And it ended up being a very small group, which had a breakout room. So I happened to be in a breakout room with Nicole Forsgren. And, but anyway, I asked her, I said, what do you think about Dora metrics and the, the DevOps Research Association around time to ship, error rates, those things applied to desktop software? And she said, absolutely, those work. And you know, you need to think about what time to deploy is like. And that is, in the web service world, time to deploy is it's, it's like, I made a change. How quickly does that change end up being run by customers? But the feedback loop is slower, of course. But we actually track all of the Dora metrics for our desktop product. We know how long it takes to a developer change, the median time from a developer change, to in a build that's available for customer. A lot of our customers, because they're making a big game that may take a year to make, they pick a version of Unity and they stick on that version for that whole time because they don't want to deal with upgrades. They want want to control everything that changes. And that's fine. We also have a lot of users who are updating in order to get bug fixes or new features or things they want to use. So while we have customers that won't update, even though updates are available, some will. But again, it's about that build being available. So how long does it take from change made to a build being available. We also are able to track error rates because our customers do report bugs a lot, which is great. It also gives us a way to track that metric. So we actually have all of the DORA metrics. This is my long answer is we have all of the Dora metrics for our on-prem product, and it's been enlightening. And one, because it gives us things to improve, but also we know that research says that improving those things will improve quality and will improve the team. So just because it's an on-prem product doesn't mean you can't use the traditional DevOps metrics. So I would suggest using them and seeing what you can do to improve them.
1: I mean, one of our main worries was some customers sticking with a certain version for whatever organizational reason. And then developers have to think, okay, I'm not working just on the current version of our software, which has, you have a mind model what that software is. But then you have that version, which is six months, year or more old, and then you have to get into that code base. Just a minor detail, but changes the developer's life day to day.
0: I think you can model it a little bit after like what Microsoft, other companies have done with release trains. So you have the yearly release train. I'm, I'm sure what, I'm, I'm making this up. You can have one version scheming, semantic version or whatever that ships yearly, another one that ships monthly, another one that ships weekly. And customers can choose which train to get on depending on their version to, well, initially their version to risk. But again, if you're using the Dora metrics and tracking those things, Ideally, what we want to see and what you'd want to see is more confidence in those weekly releases, or those more frequent releases. Depending on where you are and uh, your customer's aversion to risk, they may choose to run that older version for longer. That's an IT choice on risk assessment.
1: What are the things that you have seen in the testing board that you are, you know, the changes that you're most happy and excited about?
0: I mean, everything is sort of hinged on or, or based on the fact that customers can get software so much faster, whether it's on your mobile. I mean, there's going to be some bits of software that are still delivered very slowly due to adoption or regulatory rules or whatever. But for the most part, people are getting stuff faster. We don't have long ship cycles anymore in general. There was a time when testing was on purpose, the bottleneck. We're going to test this and we're going to... I remember being on Teams even into the early 2000s where we thought it was great if we could find ship stopper bugs really late and hold up the release because we did something great for the customer. But these days, testing is truly about accelerating the business and making things move faster. To me, that's that's the main thing that's changed. and I think it's kind of exciting, I think, to be a tester today. It isn't just about being faster. It's about being faster with higher quality. It's getting working software to customers more frequently. And I think testers of today can play a much bigger role there, which is exciting. I don't think testers are trying to most testers today, I don't think, are trying to block a release. They're trying to make sure we can get the best possible release to our customers as soon as possible. And again, if there can be situations where that's impossible, but I think that is the direction I'm happy to see things going in. And tooling is the the rise and the prevalence of CI systems used to be we had build labs at microsoft it took forever to get builds out like an office and windows like it's like a day to finish a build these days we're building working version of our software usually in minutes even our big flagship product can be built in minutes and and we can run all kinds of tests on it in a few more minutes but also We're seeing so many other tools, whether they're static analysis tools, other kinds of analysis tools, um, legal checkers, linters, etc., which are static analysis tools, run in moments. Like we have so much we can build into these CI systems that help us get to that state of functionally correct so it can make either go straight to customers in C D or have some testers look at things that are functionally correct finally. Cause so I spent a big chunk of my career really I was when I was doing API testing, a lot of that was unit testing for developers who didn't know they needed to write unit tests and as that and I didn't know developers needed to write unit tests either. Those days are over. So the fact that we can get from a developer's check-in to a testable build so fast is where a lot of our, a lot of the the creativity we're seeing today is spawned.
1: I guess you, I'm sure you had the experience through your career to work on some really old pieces of software because protocols are in that realm, maybe if they are good to be around for a long time, although they don't change much. But to get to more concrete question, what are some advices for people who are working on a software which is uh, labeled as, as a legacy?
0: When I first started at Microsoft, there was a, a network UI component that I found some bugs in. And I was literally told, don't bother reporting bugs there unless they're really, really horrible because we don't want to touch the code. I think that kind of software exists in a lot of places, whether it's the whole software or a component. Obviously, you know the cure to legacy code is when you write code, have it really well unit tested. That's that's the the safety net that unit tests give you. You can refactor, make sure you don't break anything. but I think it can be very frustrating for a tester to be in a place where they have a component or multiple components where that bugs probably won't be fixed because it just nobody wants to touch the code. It's like, so why test it? And then you have tested because it's part of the end-to-end customer experience. And maybe, maybe there's a bug in there that's actually worth opening the code up to fix it. To me, that's super frustrating and it would be hard to do. I guess my advice there is, I would see if I could actually write my own unit tests for that code. So I could become a little bit more of an expert on how it worked and see if I could understand what sorts of things made it break. A lot of times as I, as I reflect on it, a lot of times the legacy code that no one wants to touch is because also because no one understands it. And there may be parts of it that you understand why. Nobody wants to touch, but there may be parts of that code that may be okay to touch. Regardless of the fact it was legacy, I would do some work to make sure that code was better tested and more understood. Because it then even when I find that, if I've done that, and then we find that ship stopper bug that has to be fixed, we have a lot better idea of where to go look and what the risks may be in making that change. When I was a kid, I would always push and see far how, how over the line I could go. And maybe I still do that as an adult. I kind of pushed things. If this is legacy code, I'm told to stay away from. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to dig in a
1: little bit deeper and understand where the fear comes from. You just mentioned that you like to push things or you know do it differently. I mean, have you thought about that? The one of your core traits, uh, why why you became tester and stay tester and you still enjoy doing it? Is that? What?
0: Oh, that could very much be the case. Yeah, I think that's that's a. Fair observation. I'm generally curious. I love to learn. I have a passion for learning, which I think is good for people in testing roles or people who are doing some testing is that curiosity. I love pair testing. I love one of the things I'm really good at is discerning. So asking questions about things, whether it's code or that's something somebody said. And you know, we've always loved the the comment from developers like no user would ever do that. And we show them how users do, maybe through data, maybe through reports from customer bugs. But it's that conversation with people who are creating software on um, just asking them, in what ways, what's the worst way this could fail? What's something someone could do that would make this code fail? And having them think through those things is a lot of fun for me too.
1: Great, thanks. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And I'm sure that our listeners will, will also.
0: All right, thank you. What a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore Uncut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.